<laughs> well, we are wrapping up 2023 today. Uh, I wonder how it's been for you. We lamented some of the ways that maybe it has affected us. Has it thrown you curveballs that you didn't see coming? Uh, has it been maybe great evidence of God's grace to you over the past year as you reflect on the things that have, have gone on in the, in the past year? Um, many people come to this time, this is my at least personal inclination, uh, your changes tend to be times of melancholy because it never quite goes the way I envision at the beginning of the year. Great aspirations often run into the thorns and thistles that come with life in a fallen world. And so it can be tempting, I am personally tempted, towards uh, moroseness. Maybe you find that a temptation. Maybe you don't. And if not, praise God. Give thanks that your personality doesn't tend that way. Um, but we do, as the song said, uh, fight on in victory, press on. And as Paul taught us, as Gerald reminded us, uh, in the midst of a world that is still uh, broken and hurting. And so we are working through the Christmas songs in Luke's gospel. And so this morning, uh, we will turn to Luke chapter 2, uh, and Simeon's song, prayer, prophecy, kind of all, all the same, uh, from verses 29 through 32. So uh, take your Bibles and turn there. Luke 2, we'll be looking at 2, verses 29 through 32. If you don't have your own, grab the one from the pew in front of you. It's on page 857 in those pew Bibles. Uh, as Luke presents us uh, the final of his four, um, I just lost the word, canticles is the fancy Latin word for these short songs, these songs in, uh, in Luke's gospel. We looked two weeks ago at Mary's song, the Magnificat. We looked last week in the morning at Zachariah's prophecy, the Benedictus. Uh, we looked at Christmas Eve night, the angel's song, the Gloria, right? They all have fancy Latin names. And today we come to Simeon's song, prayer, prophecy, uh, which is called the Nunc Dimittis. Two, first two Latin words that means now, uh, now I can depart, which is what Simeon's prayer, how Simeon's prayer starts. Um, well, uh, Luke is, it's interesting, I didn't realize this until putting this one together, but Luke gives us in these songs kind of a picture, at least on the earthly Spain, sphere of all three generations. So we started with Mary, right, a young, uh, recently married, uh, well, at the point she's saying she's not even married, she's a young woman. Uh, we get Zechariah, who's late middle age, right, past childbearing age, but not yet uh, too old. And we get Simeon, who seems to be at the very end of his life. So Luke gives us prophecies under God's guidance and inspiration and providence and history of all the generations as they respond to the coming and the birth of the Messiah. We'll read here uh, Luke 2, starting in, I'm going to actually, we're going to back up to verse 22 and get the context before we look at the prayer itself in 29 through 32. So let's start reading Luke chapter 2, verse 22. When the time came for their purification, that's Mary and Jesus, Joseph. When the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him, that's Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts for many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years, from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So Simeon and Anna, the oldest generation, see the fulfillment of what God had promised throughout the scriptures in the child that is presented. Forty days later, we're 40 days after the birth of Jesus, according to the custom of the law. It'll be uh, 40 days from the birth until the time of cleansing for Mary and for the dedication of Jesus. And Simeon, in the spirit, declares the salvation has come. And as he looks to depart, as his life ends, he departs in peace. His soul is steadied because he's seen Jesus. I think that's what for us today, I, I pray as we meditate on Simeon's prayer, prophecy song, uh, that we see God's salvation has come. Do you want a steadied soul? See Jesus. As years change, circumstances erupt, as things come and go in life, do you want a steady soul? See Jesus. I want to meditate on this prayer. We're going to like I said, focus in. We're, we're really focusing on the songs. And so we're going to meditate on verses 29 through 32. And I'd like to do it backwards from back to front. Uh, because Simeon starts with his own experience and it builds like a grounding, bigger foundation and the bigger foundation. And so we're going to start at the big foundation and work back uh, to Simeon's response to it all. So we're going to look at uh, the theme of light, the theme of sight, and then a steadied soul. Light, sight, and a steadied soul. That's the three themes we'll look at in Simeon's prayer, Simeon's song. First light, verse 32, Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. So point one, Jesus exposes. That's what light does. <clears throat> light exposes. It's heavily drawing that image. Simeon's, Simeon's whole prayer is just really pulling on the Old Testament. That image of light is throughout all of what God had prepared us to understand, Israel to understand when Jesus was born. Uh, but particularly Isaiah. I, Simeon seems to really have Isaiah in the front of his mind uh, as he's thinking and responding to God and seeing Jesus. So just a couple of verses. For example, Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. This is God talking to his servant. <clears throat> I will take you by the hand and keep you, and I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. <clears throat> or what we read in Isaiah 49. The Lord says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and bring back the preserved of Israel, I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. <clears throat> so light does two things, and Simeon meditates on what light does. It brings exposure, it lights things up. It does two things in verse 32. <clears throat> it's a light to revelation to the Gentiles and glory to Israel. So Simeon sees in the prophecy by the Holy Spirit that this light, what Jesus is doing, the light is a metaphor for salvation, right? He sees your salvation, which is a light for revelation. So Jesus and the salvation that Jesus works reveals and glorifies. 
So just light for the nations. The salvation that God is working in Jesus reveals. What's revealed? What is this revelation that will go to the nations? <clears throat> well, I'm sure there's a whole lot of things that you could fill in to that question, answer that question, what is revealed? What does Jesus reveal to all of the nations, to all of us? Um, because Simeon seems drawing from Isaiah, I, I'm going to structure our thoughts around Isaiah. Isaiah 52.10 says, The Lord has bared or revealed his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. One thing God's salvation does is it reveals his holiness. Holiness means being set apart from what's common, to be devoted to special task, special people, to be devoted, committed. So holy ground in the Old Testament is ground that is just normal ground, but then it gets set apart from normal use for the worship of God. Holy uh, the utensils in the temple service, just to think, try to think of something that's really concrete, like the, the fire trays, you know, the andirons they use to maintain the altar. Just normal andirons. But they get set apart as holy because they're cut off from the normal use and devoted only to the worship of God. That's what it means to be holy. God is holy. Because he is not like any of the other gods or idols or idols the nations worship. He is utterly distinct, distinct from all of, all of them, even, even from his own creation. God is, God is holy because he is entirely and completely devoted to his plans and his purposes for our good, for his glory. Nothing interferes with or contaminates the devotion of God to what is good and right and just and pure. He is holy. And Jesus reveals that holiness to us, how we were meant to reflect it in his own life. He shows us the holiness of God. Um, it was a, you know, saying that to err is human. I think it was Alexander Pope who said that first, to err is human. And he meant it as sort of a concession. But if you've ever heard it, I don't know if you've ever heard it, I've heard it. And I've heard it used as sort of like a, well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. Not a, not a source of grief, but just, this is what's common. Humanity is broken, and we make mistakes, and we hurt each other. Because it's common, we think it's excusable. But what Jesus shows us is humanity in the holiness of God. That to err is not human. That pure humanity doesn't err, doesn't sin, isn't contaminated, and we need not be. He shows us in his life what it meant to reflect God's image and what it meant to do what is good and right and only good and right. He is true and full humanity, the lives we were meant to live without sin and without error. So, so to err is not human. To err is not essential to being made in God's image. It, it's our distortion, and Jesus' life exposes that by comparison, by showing us that it is possible to live in this world. It is possible to be affected by all the same circumstances and pressures and fears and uh, scarcities, being sinned against, and never sinning in return. Even to go through the deepest and most intensive sufferings, and never to sin. He shows his holiness in his life, the salvation that God is working in him, and he shows his holiness in his death. So you might ask, well, how devoted was God to saving sinners? How committed was he to that 
holy purpose. Well, so devoted that he gave his son. So devoted that God the Son took on flesh so that nails and spears could pierce him through and the cross be born for me and you. That's how devoted. That's how holy. When God calls himself all through Isaiah the Holy One of Israel, he means he's pure and perfect and good and he is utterly devoted to keeping the promises that he made, to displaying his glory to his beloved sons and daughters, to redeeming and restoring the creation that we have marred. How devoted, how holy, how pure and perfect is he? So devoted that his son would go to the cross for us. He shows us the holiness of God. Isaiah also says he shows us the righteousness of God. Isaiah 56, 1, that says the Lord, keep justice and do righteousness for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. So if holiness is the internal purity in himself, his devotion to all that is good and right and just, never deviating from who he is as our perfect God and maker and savior, righteousness is doing what is right for and to others. Always keeping promises, always blessing, always doing what is, what is good for those he is committed to. When we think about our righteousness, it's that we do right to each other, we keep our promises, we treat each other the way we ought. And for us, that ought is supremely how we ought to treat God. And Jesus, again, reveals this in his own life, right? We see what it means to treat people as they should be treated. The salvation that God is working in Jesus, the salvation that Simeon is beholding in his arms, Jesus will grow in wisdom and in stature, that's the next story in Luke, in favor with God and man, he will know how to live a righteous life. And so we will see how to treat the poor with compassion. We will see in Jesus what it looks like to bestow mercy. We will see in Jesus what it looks like to give rebukes in the right time, in the right place, to the right people. We will see in Jesus what it means to be perfectly righteous. We will see in Jesus what it means to treat God the way we ought to treat him always doing what God intended him to do. Whether that was obviously easy or the most painful of difficulties. We see in Jesus what it looks like to be righteous and we're exposed. And again in his death. Psalm 15, 14 says, Blessed is the man who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Makes promises, gives commitments, and then finds out that's going to be harmful and then doesn't change his mind, doesn't back out, doesn't weasel away, right? His yes is yes and his no is no. And Hebrews 6.17 tells us that God had made those kinds of promises to Abraham. God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise to Abraham his unchangeable character, his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. He didn't have to make that promise. He didn't have to commit himself, but he did. And once he did, he would keep it at what cost? The cost of his own son. So we see in Jesus what the true God is like, holy and righteous. And, you know, it exposes us in our folly and our foolishness. In the ancient world, the nations would find God, what a real holy and, and true God is like. Not the, not the petty, fickle, vindictive, lustful gods they served. I think they're remaking Percy Jackson, sort of a modern take on the Greek mythology. And if you, I, don't, I haven't seen you, I don't know, but... It, at all true to the source material, the gods in Percy Jackson will be vindictive, they'll be petty, they'll be lustful, they'll be vengeful, they'll be utterly self-absorbed with their own fame and their own glory. That's the gods of the nations. You know why the gods of the nations are like that? Because we made them in our image. That's what we're like. 
by nature. And Jesus shows up and would show to the nations the true and living God is not like that at all. We like the gods to be like that naturally because it excuses our selfish, petty vindictiveness. I mean, if Zeus can be a sexual abuser, then I can excuse mine. If Aphrodite can be totally vain and self-absorbed, then I can excuse my vanity and self-absorption. We like the gods to be made in our images because then we can feel good by comforting ourselves. It really is to sin as human. That's just what we do because the gods are like that too. We are, of course, we're so much more enlightened. We know that Aphrodite and Zeus, uh, we know, just stories. Yeah, we're better. We've deified ourselves. We just excuse our own lusts and deceptions and selfishness with sociology. This is the way everybody is, so it's okay for me to be this way. We use science to say whatever we evolved into must be the way that evolution is going, and so we just do what we want because there's nothing beyond nature. We can excuse all of our basest instincts. And Jesus comes, and the salvation that God is working to expose us. Expose our foolish pettiness. He exposes our merciless vindictiveness. I mean, Jesus gave, God gave his son to save rebels and enemies. And how many of you had trouble being patient with like the barista or the traffic this week? All of us. Like we, we can't even be merciful enough to be kind to people in the store consistently. And we see that God, God will give his son to save rebels and enemies. God will extend patience beyond human fathoming to draw us back to himself. This is what Simeon is beholding, light as a, as a revelation to the nations that is good news to everyone. He exposes, he reveals holiness, he reveals righteousness, and in Jesus we see the gospel revealed. And here we'll go to Ephesians chapter 3. That this was not to made known, uh, that this gospel was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. It's been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles, the nations, our fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, that we see in God as he exposes us in our sin and our folly and our vindictiveness and our pettiness, we also see a God full of mercy and grace and compassion who is bringing all the nations to himself to redeem. A light for revelation to the nations and for glory to Israel. I can't say that better than Paul. This is Romans 9. Paul's meditating on this, this idea, what God has done, and through the, the glory of Israel, they are Israelites. What is their glory? To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. Just to pause, right? That, that hope in Ephesians 3 that we are grafted in and fellow heirs is that we're grafted into the patriarchs of Israel, the promise made to Abraham, we get in on. Back to, back to Romans 9. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, this is the supreme glory, is the Christ. From their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. When our sin and our folly and the weight of God's wrath is revealed we have no other hope than the hope that was born of a Jewish mother. Circumcised according to the Mosaic law, presented at Israel's temple, and was faithful to Israel's God. There is no other hope 
for you or me or anyone who draws breath under heaven than the glory of Israel. The Messiah promised to them. He's not a mix of all the best cultures and peoples. He's not cosmopolitan in the modern sense of the world. He's not a guru among many or a teacher among a faculty of colleagues. He is the crucified and exalted king who has all authority in heaven and on earth. In the new heavens and the new earth, nations will not stream to Mecca. They will not stream to Tibet. They will not stream to New York or Washington. They will stream to the new Jerusalem where Christ will sit on his throne. Now, I just want to be clear, and we're not talking, Simeon and I am not talking about the modern nation state of Israel directly. The glory of Israel is Jesus. So again, Paul, right after outlining all the glories that came to and through the nation of Israel, it says, the very next verse, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. It's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise who are counted as offspring. How do you become a child of the promise? Romans 10, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The apostles teach us what Simeon saw something of here, that Jesus will not only reveal and expose the nations, he will be a glory to Israel, and he will expose what's going on even in the hearts of of Israelites, Jews of his day. That's what he says to Mary, right? Simeon saw this. After his prayer, he looks at Mary, blesses the parents, and says, this child is appointed, is verse 34, appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that's opposed, Simeon, by the Spirit, knows that Israel will reject their Messiah, at least some of them, and as a nation, as a people they will, so that, verse 35, thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. As the glory of all of Israel's expectations, Jesus will stand as the fulfillment of all of his promises, and everyone, Jew and Gentile alike, will either be united to him by faith or separated from him. But he is the glory. He is the salvation. He is the light that brings this revelation. So just thinking about that, 2024 is an election year. Oh, my gosh. Again, which means nonstop talk about American greatness. What we've lost, what we've gained, what we can be. Godly wise rulers are a blessing to a people, and we should pray that God would give us mercy beyond what we deserve. We should pray that godly men and women would run for office and be elected to them, okay? But we must remember the hope for the world is not a strong America. The hope for the world is Israel's Messiah, Jesus. Hope for America, Wolferth, Lubbock, can't be reduced to political power. They will try to tell you that all year long. It cannot be reduced. Our hope is not political power. Our hope for our neighbors, for our friends, even our enemies is that we would repent of our sins and trust the Messiah that God gave us through Israel. Jesus. America's not the Savior. We're not the Savior. Jesus is the Savior. He's the light. It came to shine on those sitting in darkness in the shadow of death, as we saw in Zechariah's prophecy last week, to guide us into the way of peace. That's what Simeon sees. <laughs> just... I mean, he's got a a 40-day-old baby in his arms. He's like, salvation, I see it. This child is light. And so the second one, backing up, right, he sees the light. He sees Jesus, verses 30 and 31. Think about the the theme of sight. Uh, Jesus enlightens, uh, exposes. Jesus saves. That's what he says, "I, I see your salvation. Right there in his arms, wrapped in swaddling cloths. 
40 days old, my eyes have seen your salvation, God. Uh, you might think, given the Old Testament, being so centered on one people, glory to Israel, uh, for so many centuries, you might suspect God of being just like all the other gods and really just focused on his own people. I mean, that's how all the gods of the ancient worlds were. Uh, ancient world were, were. That's what they assumed about the gods. They had their people. They had their territory. And so you, you did what the god of the place needed you to do so that the god of the place would bless you. And you might assume that about the true and living God. But this great salvation was prepared not just for one people, but in the presence of all the people. God's purpose has never been ever fine, fine to one ethnic group. That has always, always been the blessing, blessing, all the nations. Seen, 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 seen your salvation. That you prepared in the presence of all the people. The word of God's glory and God's saving might has just spread among the nations as long as God has been acting. So the first major act of salvation was the Exodus. It was no small event. I mean, God overcame the military superpower of the day with a people who were slaves and did nothing. So that when Joshua's scouts hear from Rahab and Joshua too, like the whole land of Canaan is trembling in fear because they know about God's saving power. Fast forward to Solomon. When Solomon is enthroned, dignitaries come as far from Sheba, south of Egypt, to marvel and learn from God's wisdom. Fast forward to the exile. When Israel is dispersed by the Assyrians and the Babylonians, they take their scriptures and form synagogues all through the nations, so that when Jesus is born, magi from the east have access to the word of God, can interpret the signs, and come to worship the newborn king. This salvation was not prepared in a corner, hidden away from anyone. And Paul will say the same thing to Roman rulers about the proclamation of the gospel. In Jesus' life, it wasn't done it hidden away. There was no secret knowledge kind of confined. It was prepared for everybody in full view that anyone who would could see. All announced and told ahead of time so that we would know and be saved by Jesus. So when Simeon's holding the child, the Christ, the Lord's Christ, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't say, my eyes have seen your Savior. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation. It's a small difference. I think it's a really important one. Because it's not just that Simeon, in the by the you know, prophecy of the Holy Spirit is not just saying this one is going to do great things. He is going to do great things, right? But this one himself is salvation. Simeon is delighting not just in the work that this child will do, that Jesus will do, but in, in Jesus himself as the Savior when God acted to save the world from our sins and restore humanity and to give us new birth. To rescue his people, he didn't give new principles to live by. He didn't do more, he didn't just do more and better of what he'd done in the Old Testament. He himself took on flesh to die and rise and reign forever. I mentioned Solomon's reign, right? David establishes a throne in faithfulness. Solomon doesn't even get through his whole life before he's committing idolatry. And the very next generation, the kingdom is split. You know, that kind of succession. Of, of one political party to the next, one president or Congress or Supreme Court to the next. That will never happen in the kingdom of God. Because Jesus is God himself who took on flesh and has, reigned to rule for, has risen to reign and rule forever. We have no fear of one generation's gains being lost by the successor to the throne who squanders it away because there is one king, God himself, who is now reigning on the throne as a, as a, as a man over humanity. And we're not saved 
by being united to Jesus' teaching. We're not saved by adopting Jesus' way of life. We are saved by being united to him. The beating heart of God's redemptive work is a beating heart, a person. Not principles, not a cold standard to be attempted. I mean, he gives us principles. He gives us ways to live, but he doesn't say, be saved by them. If that's the case, we, you, know, we, you and I, we, we would take it, we would try, we would convince ourselves we'd done it when we hadn't, we would change them so we could feel like we'd done it, we'd be crushed. You're not saved by the principles that Jesus gives, you're saved by the person, what Jesus has done and who he is in himself. We're not saved by Proverbs or Platitudes. I mean, so much of the New Year stuff is going to be Proverbs and Platitudes, right? Vague hopes of potential you may or may not grow into. And so much of a modern identity formation is that. Like, just be yourself. Listen to your heart. Be true to who you are. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we really think very deeply about what that means. We repeat it because it sounds nice. You can't do that. You can't be anything but true to who you are and everything about you, the things you like and the things you don't. That's all who you are. We're not saved by, you know, uh, Instagram theology. All the feels. No, we're saved. We're not, and we're not even saved by promises. I mean, the promises are glorious, and they point us to the person. But we're not saved by the promises. We're saved because Jesus took on flesh to keep the promises. We're saved because Jesus went to the cross and died to forgive our sins. We're saved because God kept his promises and raised Jesus from the dead so that we're united to him, a person, like a real living flesh and blood person. And so we really, the way Simeon felt the heft of a 40-day-old in his arms and knew, like, this real. We're, We're saved by a person with eyes that dance with your joys and weep with your sorrows. And that blaze with a holy zeal for God's glory. You're saved by a person with arms that can give bear hug embraces. That were stretched out and nailed to a cross. And that will meet out justice from a real throne. You're saved by a person with a mouth whose breath mists in the cold. I don't know if it'll be that cold in the new heavens and the new earth. But if it is, and you talk to Jesus, his breath will mist just like yours. It was breath that smelled like fish that day on the seashore when he said, come and have breakfast to his disciples after his resurrection. Breath that will one day say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or depart from me, I never knew you. And your hearers will hear the real voice chest that feels the beat of his own heart when he runs and swells to bursting with delight in God's goodness that gasped in air before uttering, it is finished. A gut that aches in sorrow, hardens in courage, burns with anger. We're not saved by principles, platitudes, even promises. We're saved by a person with blood pumping in his veins. And he had seen nothing of what this person had done, but he knew he was looking at salvation from Simeon that day. And we know even more 
child grew, was crucified and risen in glory. And he ate with his disciples. He prepared breakfast for those fishermen in John 21. He rose in glory and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Not, not because he's done so much, but because he is reigning. He is sitting in authority from which throne he will rise and come. So I pray you see Jesus. Where do you see him? You can't hold a baby in your arms like Simeon did. Well, we see him in the body here. We see him in each other. And often our vision of Christ and his glory is obscured when we look around at each other as it was for Simeon on that day. He didn't see all the glory that Christ would grow into. I don't, I don't know if Simeon saw what John saw in Revelation, right? Snow white hair, blazing white eyes. Glorious and enthroned and resurrected Jesus. And we don't see him in all his power and his strength either, but we see him. We see him in the scriptures, the accounts of his eyewitnesses. We see him as we draw near to him, so even as we try to read Chronicles. I mean, at, at least look for how in all those family trees, God is preparing this salvation. Through a real people in a real time with a real body. Jesus saves. Friend, I just plead with you, if you don't know that he is your salvation, look to Christ. We don't, we don't want to get too close to Jesus because he does expose us. We like him at arm's length as a good philosopher, somebody we can think about and kind of talk about, but not someone who we draw near to because he does expose us. But let me tell you that that exposure is so good for you and so good for me and so good for us because we see in that exposure that he knows us as we really are and he loves us and gave his life for us. He stretches those nail-scarred arms to give you an embrace if you'll come to him in honest repentance. You don't have to put on a front for him. You don't have to try to be fake. You don't have to put on a facade to make him think you're better than you are. He knows already. Come and expose. Be exposed. Let the light shine to show you, reveal the glory of God that you can know his salvation. And that, beloved, is what gives us this settled soul. see the salvation that God has prepared. So verse 29, I'm going to think about that, that settled soul, and I just want to urge us to keep seeing Jesus. Simeon seems a bit out of place in the biblical record, or maybe, maybe I better say it this way, the Holy Spirit seems a little out of place here. <laughs> Luke talks about Simeon in the way that the Old Testament really almost, I don't think ever, talked about anybody full of the Holy Spirit, filled with the Spirit. The Spirit was upon him. I mean, given these kind of revelations, he's told by the Spirit that he, he wouldn't taste death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. He was in the Spirit, in the temple. I mean, that's all language that you're probably familiar with, but you're familiar with it from Acts. The, Holy, the work of the Holy Spirit in Simeon seems, seems out of place in the, the history of redemption. It seems like something that should wait until Jesus has ascended and the Spirit's been poured out. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Spirit, you know, told him this. All this is the way the Spirit will, will describe the way the, the Spirit works, Luke will describe the way the Spirit works among the church after Pentecost. And we get a foretaste here of what it means for us 
as God's people, given this kind of spirit, to have peace, to see the salvation that God has worked in Christ. We assume because of the reference's departure that he's an older man. The, the scriptures never actually say that he's old, but the way he talks about letting your servant depart in peace, it sounds like he's been waiting his whole life, and now he's ready to die. So we, the tradition, is, and pairing him with Anna, we read about, the prophetess, who's been, it's not even clear in the Greek, either she's 84 years old and a widow, or she has been a widow for 84 years, which would make her something like 104, 105. The very end of life, his life is, is closing, it's references departure, that he sees and he's at the, the language is also the language you might use um, for a servant and a master or a soldier and his commanding officer. Now you're letting your servant depart in peace. Lord, the word for Lord there in Greek isn't the normal uh, word that gets used most. It's, it's the word that emphasizes God's role as master and director, commanding officer, something like that. And so Simeon in his prayer, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace. It's sort of it sounds like I finished my watch. I fulfilled my responsibility. Release me from my duties. I've done what you sent me to do. I've been faithful to the calling that you've given me to watch and wait and see the Lord's Christ. And here it's done. And so now my soul can be released. I can depart in peace. He's done what he's supposed to do. He's been faithful to God. God has been faithful to him and now he can stand down. He hasn't seen the end of the story, right? He doesn't see how the salvation will come through this child. He doesn't know how this child from Nazareth, right, the reject part of, of Israel, uh, being, bringing the sacrifices for the poor, two turtle doves, which is the, what you had to bring if you couldn't afford a lamb, so they're an impoverished people from the sticks in the north. Um, he hasn't seen how this child can become the Christ. How can this child be the Christ? But he knows that he is. And so he doesn't need to see all the details. He doesn't need to see how it's all going to work out to be at peace. To say, I'm, I've done the work you've given me to do. He knows God. And he knows God's word. And now he's seen the Lord's Christ. And so his soul is rested, settled, steady. He can face even death with this confidence. In this, he, he really applies uh, what was said about Abraham about you know, millennia earlier. Genesis 15, 15. God is laying out the timeline for Abraham. That he called Abraham to leave his father and mother, to uproot his life, to come live in a place that he had promised him. And now he's telling Abraham in Genesis 15, yeah, you're actually not going to get the land for another 400 years. It'll be 400 years before your descendants inherit this land. Uh, They've got to go down to Egypt. They've got to be enslaved. They've got to be rescued from there. Because it's not time yet to fulfill all the promises. But he says to Abraham, as for you, you will go to your fathers in peace and be buried in a good old age. And so Abraham, uprooted from his family, followed God's commands, trusting these promises, uh, would see none of them come to pass in the fullness that God made them. And yet he knew God. He knew God's word. He would see the first son, who would be the deposit that would bring all the uh, promises to pass. And Isaac, Isaac. we see that son, that son. And then, and then brought back from the dead, figuratively, figuratively, sacrifice. And so he would, so he would die in peace. And the author, and the author tells, us, tells us, because there was a city coming, built without, built without hands, something better. Abraham expected God's plans to be bigger than his own life. 
He didn't feel resentful near the end of his life as he had grown in faith. The promises God made didn't happen on my timeline. He would do his part, and generations to come must do theirs. Simeon, same thing. God's plans are bigger than his own life. He would do his part. He knew on that day in the temple he had done it, and generations to come must do theirs. We must have expectations that are bigger than our own lives and our own times. We are not the saviors of the world. We are not even the saviors of our own households. We are not the saviors of our communities. We are those who have been united to salvation. And like Simeon, we must be doggedly faithful. We should be doggedly faithful to what God has shown us in his word. Knowing that whatever happens around us, whatever we live to see or not see in the fulfillment of God's promises in this life, God is working a plan so much bigger than any of us individually, so much bigger than our own space and our own time that we can trust him in peace because he has given salvation. So that you can say at the end of your life, I have, like Paul, I have fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. So those mouth will utter, the mouth of our Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. And we have that settled peace when we see Jesus. It's not an invitation to make up your own calling and expect God to jump on board. I can depart in peace because I've done what you said. Uh, This is a call to do what God has shown us in his word. Loving each other, loving the Lord, bearing witness, walking in righteousness and holiness. And then you may develop a particular desire to live out your discipleship in a particular way, right? Like Simeon knew. I mean, he had a special revelation. This is his calling. This is his post. This is the watch he's keeping. And you may have some inclination, some desire that arises, something like that that you think Jesus is leading you to do. And let me just encourage you, test it by the scriptures. Stay close to the body of Christ, the church. Uh, get lots of input, and then go for it. Live a life trusting God, following him, and doing what he's called you to do, being faithful to all of his word, not thinking uh, that you have to prove yourself, not thinking you have to justify yourself, but because you know God, and you know his word, and you've seen his salvation. And you have to keep returning our attention to Jesus, to be faithful, to have a settled soul, steady through through 23 through 2024 and however long till Jesus tarries or we depart have a soul that is steady and settled on him we have to keep seeing Jesus keep our attention fixed on him we will be distracted we'll have to focus on other things you can't spend your whole day meditating on the salvation that comes in Jesus you got to fix food you got to do your work you got to there's all kinds of other things Jesus has given us to do that's not like a failure on your part that's the way we are But we do have to keep making ourselves return our attention, return our gaze, to see Christ, our Savior, to steady our souls. And I I suspect that you, first instinct there, because you're Americans like me, is some sort of individual personal devotional habit. That'd be great. Please, use the Bible reading challenge and establish a devotional habit. But what I mean and what the Bible gives us really is, is, beloved, this. Because of the way Luke is foreshadowing Pentecost, I want to suggest that when we draw near to see the son, uh, the son of God and salvation at the temple, what we do is draw near as the temple of Christ. The dwelling place of God on the, world, in the, on the earth is us gathered. And to keep seeing Jesus is to commit yourself to gather and worship and hear and sing and praise and uh, be, you know, delight in God together, adore and worship him together. 
and not to do it from a distance. Again, I don't want to press the symbolism too far, but I do think there's something in the fact that Simeon took this child up in his own arms. And if you want to see Jesus and have your soul steadied, you can't observe Jesus from a distance. That's no good. You can't keep him safely at arm's length. You can't learn about him. You can't master the facts of him. You've got to get close. You've got to let him see into the depths of your soul. You've got to be honest about everything that's going on in your heart. You've got to bring out your fears and confess your sins and admit your struggles and talk to, bring, it, bring it all to him. You've got to take the aspirations you've got and submit them to him and ask him for input. You've got to take the things you love, the family and the career or the, you know, the influence, whatever it is, you've got to take it all. You've got to bring it to him. You've got to let his light shine on it. You can't keep him at a distance. You've got to get, bring him close. You've got to let him in. You've got to let him root around. You've got to let him expose. It's only then that you'll really know the depths of his love for you. It's only then that you'll really know the depths of his saving work for you. So we grow closer and closer to him. And we draw closer, I mean, not because we're holding a child, right? But we draw closer to the one John sees in Revelation with fiery eyes and snow-white hair, a sword of his mouth that pierces the division of joints and marrow. It can be a frightening thing to get that close to the Savior of the world. If you draw near in confident submission, faithful trust, you will find that glorious Savior purifies and cleanses and gives mercy. And that will steady your soul. Bodily sicknesses, job changes, political comings and goings, wars and rumors of wars, natural disasters, whatever other curve Pulse 2024 will throw. See Jesus. Keep looking at Jesus. Gather to worship and adore Jesus. Pour out your hearts and souls to Jesus. Bring him close, draw close to him. And as surely as Simeon saw salvation on that day, we have seen it in Christ, and we will see him again. And we won't be embracing him so much as he will be embracing us. Glory, mercy, bless be God. Let's pray. Father, our sights are so often clouded and we don't see how great and glorious Jesus is. We lose sight. We are grateful for mercy in this work of your spirit. We're grateful you haven't left us to figure this out, but you have shown us in the scriptures and given us your son and secured us by your spirit and we long for the day when our sight by faith will be physical, literal sight of our Savior. Come, Lord Jesus. Beloved, as we live out our lives together today, um, we're going to welcome uh, Brandon and Caitlin. You guys come on down to the front. Uh, Brandon and Caitlin Stroud are with us to join.